Welcome to the Econ Pop Podcast, where we sift through the haystack of popular culture to find the needle of economics within, and then stab you with it. I'm your host, Andrew Heaton. Our website is econstories.tv, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, or find links and other content related to today's conversation. In this inaugural edition of the Econ Pop Podcast, we'll be discussing one of the most critically acclaimed films of 2013, Dallas Buyers Club. Joining me today are Steve Horwitz, the Charles A. Dana Professor and Chair of the Department of Economics at St. Lawrence University, and Paul Cantor, the Clifton Waller Barrett Professor of English at the University of Virginia. And I'm Andrew Heaton, a baritone. All right. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for being here. Paul Cantor, hello. Hello. And Steve Horwitz, hello to you as well. Hello. And today we're going to be discussing Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, For those of you that are uh, having a difficult time remembering it, uh, Matthew McConaughey plays a skeleton, and he (laughs) catches HIV uh, early on in the film. And uh, two things happen. On, on On one level, he's being redeemed as a character. On an economic level, he is finding out how difficult it is to get the proper medication he needs due to uh, thwarting efforts from the FDA. And so he, he finds a variety of ways to circumnavigate them and extends his life and many others. Uh, did you all enjoy the film? I loved it. I thought it was terrific. Uh, I thought I, I loved McConaughey. I thought that uh, skeletal was the right word. I mean, downright scary. And, and Jared Leto, too, by the way. Uh, I thought it was great performances. Uh, I don't know how true to the actual history it was, but as a story, uh, I thought it was it was a useful one. I'd have to say that uh, I I wouldn't use the word enjoy for the film. Yeah, <laughs> actually, extremely painful to watch. Yes, but the performances were astounding, especially McConaughey. For once, he didn't bulk up for a film; he bulked down. Uh, and uh, I thought its treatment of the FDA was really right on, and yep. I did not expect to see that in a uh, film coming out of Hollywood. Yeah, Paul, I concur with you on both counts. And enjoy is perhaps a different word to use. Yeah. I, I wouldn't recommend that on a date, for instance. Uh, it, is, it is something of a heavy yeah, no. movie. Um, unless you are planning on breaking up with somebody in the FDA, then I would say right. it's the perfect movie uh, or to, you're t- to go see. Or um, you're taking out someone with a hate on the FDA. That might be a fun time. <laughs> Absolutely. That's true. That could be a really good, uh, angry yet fun date. Um, and so there are a lot of themes that emerge in it. I mean, we're, we're kind of investigating it from the, the economics end. And I mean, the FDA is certainly the big, the big player in the room. Uh, but early on, the FDA isn't initially the driving force. The driving force is Matthew McConaughey trying to, uh, to stay alive through medication. He starts going to Mexico and uh, it, it creates entrepreneurship. There's, a, there's a, a need for these products and he is able to meet them. And, and so from, from an economics perspective, uh, how do you guys find this film enlightening to people watching it? Well, w- one quick thing I note is that, you know, those early scenes where he goes across the border to Mexico and then, you know, brings the, brings the medication across, um, it's, it's almost a textbook example of, of entrepreneurship in the sense of, as you say, there's a clear need over here. He, McConaughey's character, knows that, there, uh, the, that these resources are there, and he's willing to undertake the cost to bring resources from Mexico you know, into Dallas uh, and make them available to people. And, and what I thought was, you know, without hammering us over the head with it, he's clearly making a profit. I mean, one of the things you, over the course of the film, he graduates from that, that beat-up car into that gorgeous Cadillac, right? So he's clearly doing really well here. But it's never the, 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 the film's producers and writers never make a big deal out of it. He, but, but, but illustrate beautifully 
that his profit is completely compatible with improving the lives of all these, all these HIV patients. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a great line when he says, I'm not running a goddamn charity. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although I, I agree with both of you, I think that you're absolutely right. There is a, a marked social benefit uh, from his entrepreneurial activity. But there's, there's another point in the film that I really enjoyed, and it's where the, the older gay couple gives him a house. Yes. And, and he, he says, like, this is, this is a piece of shit. I'm not buying this house. Why would I buy it? And they said, we're, we're not selling it to you. We're, we're giving it to you. We want to help. And I, a lot of people, I think, forget that when we're, when we're talking about how to best deal with social ills, when we're referring to the free market, we're not only referring to capitalism, which is a good and driving force, but there is an, a, a supplementary component to that, which is private charity. And, and you saw both of those in this film. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think uh, – that the whole, I mean, sort of that character, the two characters of the older couple were fascinating in a number of ways uh, as a representation of, of real lived lives at the time that we now think of as being, oh, that's what you know, gay couples are like today. But in the 70s, they were there. They just were, they were uh, less, less visible. Uh, and, and the way in which a number of people in the, in, we know historically, but also in the film, in which the, the gay and lesbian community pitched in. Uh, in those charitable, volunteer, you know, civil society kinds of ways are, are an amazing part of the story, too. Another side of the film, the film that I liked uh, was that it distinguishes between entrepreneurship and crony capitalism. Yeah. Uh, that is, it shows that in the case of, of uh, Big Pharma, this drug company, Avonex, uh, it's in bed with the government, it's in bed with the FDA. And so it's not as if the FDA uh, is against business or money making. It's against anyone who's not part of its monopoly. It's trying to establish an effective monopoly for Avonex uh, uh, and uh, its AZT drug. And you see the, uh, the way the sort of conspiracy between a uh, supposed government regulatory agency and the kind of company it's, it's supposed to regulate. Uh, Paul, that's a wonderful point and, and something that I wanted to talk to both of you about. Um, I'm, I'm very familiar with the concept of regulatory capture. And uh, is, is a quick button for those listening. Regulatory capture is uh, a very real phenomenon. It's where when you have regulations and laws written by the government, they're usually really being written by the companies lobbying the government because they have the resources to do it. And I'm curious, with, with the FDA, which is an agency I'm less familiar with, do, do they have – are you aware of – uh, fast tracking for for big pharmaceutical companies. Do do they have uh, incentives built in to the programs uh, that, uh, in in order to um, incentivize better better testing, better results for profitable drugs? Well, I, I do think one of the things they have, and that we, again, we as, as Paul said, we see in the film, is that the regulators have relationships with the small group of firms they regulate on a regular basis, right? And, and we talk all the time about the so-called revolving door where, you know, FDA administrators come out of, the, out of big pharma uh, and where, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the people who leave the FDA may end up in big pharma doing lobbying. So we're going back and forth and it is this, this insidious kind of or incestuous sort of relationships here where all they can think about is the other uh, and, and when they think about things like approval and sort of uh, the unwillingness of the FDA historically to look at alternative medicines or to approve. I mean, one of the interesting points was the, um, the, the, the protein that they were using to uh, treat the dementia, right, is not even a, 
a drug in the sense that we think of as, as a drug, right? And so many of the things that McConaughey was bringing back, the aloe and these sorts of things, were plant materials. Yet the FDA, you know, uh, can't, can't, uh, doesn't even know what to do with those. At one point, McConaughey says, no, says they're not illegal, they're just unapproved, yeah. right? It, yes, and I think f- that's a great line. Yeah, the film is very, very strong on that point, that it's the Federal Drug Administration, uh, and it's supposed to regulate drugs, uh, yet there's a whole category of things, vitamins, dietary supplements, uh, and it's actually, I'm not an expert on this, but as I understand it, it's in light of events like this that the FDA uh, stepped in and decided it had the right to regulate virtually any substance uh, that is in any way marketed to have health results, and it really is a case of the sort of um, effort of a federal agency to expand its scope well beyond its original uh, legislative mandate. I think if you look at these advertisements today for these sort of health supplement type products on TV, right, you know, they have to have this disclaimer. I believe they're required to that says, you know, this is not a, this, there's no, not approved by the FDA and there's no evidence that this has, you know, medicinal value, something like that, right? There's this sort of boilerplate language that they have, you know, in small print on the screen, which I think, as Paul points out, is sort of all part of this same, this same process. This, this would be as opposed to the regular pharmaceutical company commercials that have these wonderful right. scenes of people kayaking yes. and hugging each other on a mountain while they say the side effects include anal bleeding. And, right, uh, exactly. That's exactly right. I, I, I'm not sure whether that's from from a litigious society or whether that's actually an, an FDA law. Uh, either way, well, I, but, I suspect they feed yeah, on right. one another. It amounts to the same thing, right? I mean, certainly one of the things that we don't see a lot of in this movie, but that's relevant to to, to this question is what tort law looks like, right? I mean, issues of malpractice and so on. We do see some of it in the hospital, right? Dallas Methodist or whatever it is, being concerned about their legal liability for certain sorts of things, right, and about the, the, the testing, you know, the, the, the drug testing and so on. But what we don't see a lot about is, you know, what, what, what manufacturers' exceptional concerns about what if we do this. Uh, and again, the FDA creates these rules, which then creates an incentive for the drug companies to get in bed with the FDA so they're protected from legal, re- you know, legal action if they screw up. I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, one of one of the points that, that you you bring up uh, that that I uh, even if we take away the crony capitalism element, and I, I don't think that we should forget that. But if we remove that, and we assume that all of the people working for the FDA are uh, let, let's say in no way corrupt. They're still public servants, and they're still bureaucrats. And there's there's a big difference between being a bureaucrat and being a a private entrepreneur. And in this instance. The very big difference that's important to people who are in precarious uh, physical situations is if I'm the guy that puts the final stamp on approving a drug and that drug turns out to be able to kill people, I'm going to get fired and maybe go to jail. Conversely, if there's a drug which is of tremendous benefit but could potentially harm people and I don't approve it, no one will ever hear of that. Yep, yep. And exactly. So I can remain yep. safe in my obscurity. So I, yep. I have an incentive to be less proactive with the amount of yep. drugs that are released. Yes. Yep. I'm, I'm old enough to remember the thalidomide story. Much of the reputation of the FDA uh, rests on the fact that it did not authorize the uh, – 
uh, a birth-encouraging uh, drug, thalidomide. It led to all sorts of uh, horrible disfigurations and births in Europe, and the FDA took a huge amount of credit that it had blocked this drug. It has never uh, been blamed uh, for drugs it didn't authorize which could have gone on to save lives and that are available as near as Canada or Mexico, as the film suggests. Yeah, and this is a, this problem of errors of omission and commission we see in all, it's a problem that plagues government agencies in general. You can make the same arguments about responses to natural disasters, right? If, if, if government comes in and makes matters, does things that have a risk that might make matters worse, that's a real problem. But if they lay back and say, well, we didn't have the resources to help solve this problem, they won't get blamed for not doing things. They'll get blamed for doing things. One of my other favorite lines, by the way, with relevant to this is McConaughey at one point early on says, he says, screw the FDA, I'm going to be DOA, yeah. Right? Yeah. which is yeah. a nice little bit of poetry there. But, but it's exactly that, which is uh, why, you know, uh, the bureaucratic incentives aside, what, what the bureaucrats can't think in terms of is what are the incentives facing the patients, right? Yeah. And, and what's the risk to them of trying something with a death sentence, right, that, that might harm them? How much worse can the harm be? And, 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 you know, who gets, you know, another line, McConaughey says, just, I, get, I say what goes in my body, not you, right? And, and that, you know, that, who, who, who faces what incentives about making which decision are an important underlying part of the story here. Yeah, the film was very strong on this point because early on the McConaughey character is told he's got 30 days to live. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, in fact, lives seven years. Uh, and there's that scene towards the end when he's trying to get a restraining order on the FDA. And a judge in San Francisco rules in favor of the FDA but says this law is irrational. I have to stick by the law, but the law is irrational. And you're basically saying to someone uh, who you've told him you've got 30 days to live and then don't take this drug. It might harm you. Right. <laughs> yes, and that's like when you you sometimes see these uh, press releases from the FDA that are um, you know, kind of propaganda, and it'll say you know after seven years of testing, we have concluded that this drug will save over five thousand lives a year. And you you look at that and go, okay, does that mean that the previous seven years that you allowed those five thousand people a year to die by not having access to the medication, wouldn't that be the direct logical conclusion? Yeah, I mean that's you know that that's that opportunity cost as we say in economics, right? Uh, that's the whole issue here. And and then when you look at these errors of omission and commission, you have to ask the question: what you know, what's the alternative as compared to what? Well, you know, I, I think we've, we've done a wonderful job so far of, of really drumming the FDA, which I'm very pleased by. I, I think uh, well, uh, we've we've probably convinced a bunch of FDA Food and Drug Administrators to uh, to you know quit their jobs and become tech entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, benefiting everybody. So um, that's fantastic. A couple of things that I, I want to give them sort of a, a counterpoint is uh, let's let me play devil's advocate with you for a moment. So let's say that I am a uh, nefarious pseudo-pharmacist, and I'm going to grind up, I don't know, deer hooves or something and, and claim that it's uh, a miracle cure for people that, that have uh, AIDS or cancer or something like that, uh, and I'm going to sell it at an exorbitant price, there are very desperate people out there. So this would be one of the arguments in favor of FDA regulation, that it would protect people from not necessarily unproven medication, but medication which uh, is, is really just snake oil. Uh, how, how would you respond to that? I'll, I'll just throw a couple things out. I think uh, there's an important difference between snake oil, as you say, and harmful stuff, right? So 
merely selling snake oil, we can talk about in terms of perhaps fraud, depends on the exact promises that a person makes. You don't need an FDA to prosecute fraud if they're making promises for this product that, that simply can be proven to be not, not true. Okay? So that's one point. If it's generally, you know, if it's poison disguised as medicine, then you got a whole different, you've got a criminal question here. But the, but the issue is, we, too often when we think of regulatory bodies, we point to the cases where they can theoretically be helpful. But we forget that the powers it would take to enable them to, at least in theory, do that are the very same powers and the incentives that we've been talking about that lead them to make the other mistakes. So I think you can be critical of the FDA and, and still say it's possible that the FDA might save lives in certain kinds of situations. But you can't just have an FDA that only does that. You're always going to have one that also makes errors of omission. That's the structural incentives that, that we've been talking yeah, about. That's, that's, that's so, cover my ass guy, right? Well, right, exactly. Right. So, so you can't, you know, you, you have to have double entry political bookkeeping here. You can't just look at the good things it can conceivably do as if those are completely separable from the powers it would have that would also lead to the bad things. The problem is that it's not so easy to distinguish snake oil from real medicine. And in the yep. history of medicine, they've often switched places. Things yep. that were thought to be good turned out to be bad and vice versa. And that was certainly true at this early stage of the uh, AIDS epidemic. And the film makes that clear. One very strong point in the film is that it shows what a knowledgeable customer the McConaughey character is. Uh, he goes online, he gets medical reports, he reads medical journals like The Lancet. It shows that, in fact, consumers are... Uh, reasonable, they try to be well-informed, especially when their lives are, are at stake. It turns out, and the film shows him better informed than many of the doctors, and uh, we tend to underestimate consumers. Um, it's one of the paradoxes that's always struck me of democracy, that we expect people to know who to vote for, uh, but we don't expect them to be able to choose their medicine. Right. And right. if you can't even right. choose right. your medicine or choose right. what food to eat, how are you going to choose yeah. the right politicians? You can't, you're and, incapable of running your own life, but you're capable of picking the people who will run your life for yeah. you. Yeah, so no, and one other point I'd add to that, that Paul just made, it's, and even Paul you know, said, use the word online, but, but he's actually, he's in the library, right, looking at, at, yeah. at microfilm. This yeah. is 1980-whatever. I mean, yeah. jump forward to 30 years later, and the resources that patients have at their disposal, I don't go to my doctor without walking in and saying, here's yeah. what I've looked at about you know, here's what I think my problem is, right? And my doctor's job is to say you're right or you're wrong, basically, right? So, you know, I mean, there's so many resources out there now. It's, it's, it, it's almost, I mean, this movie would, would have been even more, it's part of the power of the point that Paul just made is to recognize that McConaughey could still do this with the limited resources at his disposal in 1985 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I want to go back to an earlier point. Paul, you, you make a wonderful point that um, the FDA is not necessarily God in terms of understanding the efficacy of drugs and, in fact, can mess it up. Uh, while it's not the FDA, there, there are wonderful advertisements uh, slash horrifying advertisements from the 1950s of the Surgeon General endorsing cigarettes. Oh, yes. You know, you have some very, very uh, intelligent looking guy in a white lab coat smoking a, a slim going, you know, your T-zone is very important. Uh, you need to relax the, the space between your eyes and your mouth. And so cigarettes are the best way to do it. Uh, so, yeah, the idea that it's always going to be this, uh, this foolproof situation uh, is, is not true. Let me just say, throughout the first half of the 19th century, smoke was regarded as a disinfectant, right. and it was actively promoted in London. Yep. Really? Yep. yep. Yes. Wow. 
Yeah, no, I think the the the, the uh, you know the history of of medicine is littered littered with things we now know are really bad ideas that people thought were just fine. Lobotomies. Uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Then, yeah. You know, there's electroshock therapy. There's all sorts of yeah. things. And uh, yeah. And you, you. I mean, you, uh, uh, Steve, you, you brought up a good point a moment ago. There, there, there were uh, examples in the film of people that were very, very proactive in seeking out their own medical treatment. Yeah. And yeah. something that we haven't talked about yet is when you get these individuals that want a particular product, have a particular need. Uh, they're not necessarily going to take no as an answer if the FDA or another federal organization shuts them down. Yeah. Now, in, in the film that we watched. Um, he gets away with it in a very kind of cute, clever way, which is basically he's forbidden by law to sell drugs from out of the yep. country. That would be yep. illegal and he would go to jail. So he opens up the Dallas Buyers Club, which is the name of the film. And the way it works in this case is that he uh, sells a membership to his club and you can have as much drugs from it as you want. Basically, you, it's it's just a giant um, medicine cabinet that you have access to for an entry fee. Yep. Uh but he was able to circumnavigate that. And that would be yep. the benign form. But there's also a lot of situations where there may not be a benign form. You could have a black market developing for other drugs and things like that. And when you have black markets, a lot of the time uh, you get crime. I, I guess in this instance, we probably call it a gray market, the, the, yeah. the buyer's club. I don't know. What are your thoughts? First, I thought that that was another brilliant portrayal of, of entrepreneurship, right? Yeah. Recognizing, you know, how do, I, it's, how do I get around the law? Well, it's a very clever way to get around the law by going through the membership club. And, and, and it's clear that that was, you know, it's a, it was a good business model too, as it turned out, uh, though we don't know what would have been a better one in the absence of, of those regulations. And, and certainly, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, the, mem- the, the, the buyer's club was already a gray market, right, for just the reasons you say. Um, and, and all of those people who were participating in it were taking risks, you know, were operating sort of in the shadow of the law. We, you know, there's plenty of scenes in the film where, we, where he's got to call his lawyer because the FDA is harassing him. Uh, and he's got to be able to make sure, you know, that his customers are protected. I mean, so, yeah, I, this is one way of thinking about this is what these regulations do, even if they don't prohibit the activity they raise the cost of doing it. He has to find a way to, you know, his, the resources are diverted into finding a clever way around the law. Mm-hmm. Then he has to expend all these resources trying to protect himself in an area which the law is uncertain. And the one thing businesses hate most is that kind of uncertainty. But I think it was, you know, again, the film did a beautiful job in illustrating how entrepreneurs can react to that and still, you know, produce, produce what consumers want. True. Let's not forget that the IRS gets involved yes. towards the latter half of the film, and that's the worst thing that ever happens <laughs> to poor McConaughey when the when yeah. the IRS goes after him. That, yep. that was my favorite Paul Paul moment because um, he's not really a likable character for most of the film, and in fact, I don't. I, I, I from from just a cultural angle, we, we might say that he redeems himself because at the beginning he's this extremely oh, yeah. uh, right. extremely homophobic masculine presumably racist, you know, heavy drinker. There's not a lot to like about him. Uh, he, he does shed a lot of these biases, but even then, no. biases aside, when he's just screaming obscenities very confidently at the IRS, uh, he, he gained a lot of points for me. I think well, it's ahead, an interesting part, part of the film that I, I've rarely seen a film where the hero is such an unattractive character on so many different levels. Uh, yet it makes the film powerful in its own way. And it, it's an interesting test case that here's a man who seems to be ignorant, bigoted, narrow-minded, and yet he redeems himself by what turns out to be his intelligence, um, 
his entrepreneurial character, his willingness to search, seek out information. Uh, in a way, he he's the kind of person that the FDA is supposedly protecting. Yeah. Uh, this dumb Texan. And yeah. yet it turns out that he is perfectly capable of rising to the occasion when his life is at stake. Yeah, and, and let, me, let me look at that same issue from another angle, too. Because I, what I found fascinating is, is that same transformation of his character. I mean, there's the one early scene with the, with the Jared Leto character where you know, he says, I, I don't want to do business with a homophobic, homophobic asshole like you, to McConaughey's character. But he does, right? And, and the way in which sort of market relationships bring, mar- markets bring together people who might otherwise not have any kind of interaction with each other, but now out of that sort of you know mutual benefit of the marketplace, find themselves having to deal with people they would otherwise not like. And what's great about this is that that McConaughey's character learns and and loves in the end. I mean, his reaction, you know, we're, we're we'll not spoil things, but his reaction to later events in the in the film for those who haven't seen it are clear that he really does care. These are are now his friends. I mean, certainly the Jared Leto character is are now his friends. Uh, and that he has come to respect them. And there's one point where he defends, uh, you know, there's a scene in the supermarket, right, where he t- goes after his old friend for, for, for going after Jared Leto. And, and, and that's behavior that there's simply no way he would have engaged in earlier in the film. And, and to some degree, it's the way in which the market and, and that mutual benefit has brought those people together that has enabled them to come to, to respect and understand and in the end love. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, the way the market overcomes prejudices. I'd also say that yeah. supermarket scene is quite important because the McConaughey character uh, starts looking at ordinary products that are FDA approved yes. and they are meats that have all sorts of artificial chemicals yes. in them. And he starts searching out organic food and uh, it, it again shows you that the FDA often approves things that may be of dubious value uh, while again trying to prevent things that could be of real value. Um, these are all wonderful points and uh, I, I, uh, I like that we were ending on uh, we, we sort of began on the wonderful element of commerce that uh, that uh, Pocani's character uh, coming in and creating this business uh, while making him more wealthy also ex- literally extended the life of many people and that uh, this this free commerce uh, this this free interaction between people also reduced the amount of bigotedness out there in the world. And I, I think that that's true. Uh, well, we're going to wrap up in a moment. I'd like to know from both of you what your favorite moment was in the film. That's a, ah, oh, there's, there's so many, I mean, you know, screw the FDA. I'm going to be DOA was, a, was just a great little <laughs> yeah. piece of writing there. My favorite line too. Uh, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll mention one that we haven't talked about just because I want to make sure that, that we mention it. There's one point where, you know, there, we're operating out of the hotel and uh, McConaughey's on the phone and a customer comes in and, and McConaughey's pissed off because the Florida Buyers Club is cheaper than his. <laughs> and I and and he, you know, McConaughey says, all right, well, finish it, go then do, you know, go deal with them. But 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 hey, you know what? It's not. There's not even a monopoly here, right? I mean, there's real market competition. These buyer clubs are now competing with the other buyers clubs. And again, very what what. It's not a moment, but and Paul said this too. What was marvelous about this movie is this is this is how it seems to me. If you want to make you know art with a message, okay, you just make really good art 
where the message is not hitting you over the head. And the message in this movie is, is, is beautifully underplayed and there to be kind of taken by osmosis for those who are watching and listening carefully. And I think that's what makes it, in fact, so powerful and, and, and probably so impactful. I'll also say uh, about the film, it would have been so easy to choose a more attractive hero, to make the hero a professor who is knowledgeable and, you know, the kind of person you'd expect to come up with the answers. Uh, but the decision to take this McConaughey character as the focus, uh, it's really what makes the film so powerful uh, and, and really makes the point uh, that you don't have to be a genius, you don't have to be educated to be able to take care of yourself when your life is on the line. Uh, again, that, that, that line uh, when McConaughey says, I say what goes into my body, not you. And the guy, guy from the FDA s- says, or the doctor says, that decision, like it or not, is left up to the people in this hospital. Uh, that's the core of the movie that's there. Uh, who is going to decide what you need to do to survive? You yourself, who have a real stake in it, or a bunch of bureaucrats who have no stake in it, other than their own sense of their own their power, it does a good job of showing the kind of power hunger on the part of the bureaucrats that they are not reacting simply rationally, but their their pride is up, uh, and uh, they're protecting their turf, uh, and they don't uh, they have utter contempt for the people they're supposedly trying to protect. Absolutely, these are all good points. I'll, I'll weigh in very briefly. My favorite moment in the movie is. Uh, early on, Matthew McConaughey is uh, apparently praying. He's he's very deep in thought and saying, you know, I just want a little bit more time. There are these votive candles in front of him. He looks like he's in a Catholic church, and then it pulls back, and these are just candles in front of him at a strip club, and that's where he's having his deep spiritual moment. I enjoyed, uh, I enjoyed the humanity and the humor of that, and I particularly enjoyed speaking to the both of you, Paul Cantor and Stephen Horwitz. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am smarter for having spoken to you. Thank you. Well, thank you, thank for, you having for having us. This has been the Econ Pop Podcast. Thanks for listening. For more information about our show or to visit our archives, go to econstories.tv. To watch the Econ Pop web series, go to youtube.com econstories. It's like this show, only shorter and with moving pictures.